Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. So as I said at the beginning of Mass, today we're celebrating the feast day of St. Justin Martyr. He was an early church convert to the faith. He was born around the year 100, the end of the first Christian century. He was converted, historians say, somewhere around the year 130. He tried out a lot of those uh, kind of popular philosophical religious schools at the time. He, the last, uh, he, was, he was dipping his toe in Platonism before he, he made his way to Christianity. And in the year 165, he suffered martyrdom along with um, five other companions. He was scourged, and then they were beheaded. He was a brilliant scholar, uh, philosopher. He was one of the first philosopher converts of the faith, and he wrote prolifically. He wrote so extensively. Um, His uh, apologies, um, which are not sorry letters, they are his defense of the faith and his uh, dialogues, especially his dialogue with Trypho the Jew, They were so formative for the early church fathers, St. Justin Martyr's uh, thinking. Anyway, I think it's pretty astounding when you just think about the timeline. He's not that far removed from St. Paul, who we hear about in the first reading, right? St. Paul, who died shortly, uh, you know, around the year 67. St. Paul, who was also martyred. Justin Martyr is not that far removed from uh, from St. Paul. And I think that's pretty astounding. And I think about like the intermediaries between St. Paul and Justin Martyr, right? Like how did we get from a St. Paul to a Justin Martyr? And I often think about the history of the church, like the spread of the gospel, the spread of Christianity through time. I think about it through the image of how the Easter Vigil liturgy begins, right? The Easter Vigil liturgy begins with that big bonfire and we light the Paschal candle. The Paschal candle is brought into the church and from the light of Christ, individual flames are lit and they're spread flame by flame, person to person, person to person, passing along the flame down through the ages. That's how the faith is passed. Just think about who were the people, who were the candles between Paul and Justin. We see in that first reading that Paul, he, he came to Ephesus and he started, if you will, a big bonfire there a bonfire of faith, we call it the early church community in Ephesus. It was such an intense witness that he gave them that he was, um, I mean, in Ephesus was one of the wonders of the ancient world, the temple to Artemis. It was this gigantic temple, and uh, the whole economy of Ephesus was built up around the, the cult of Artemis, and Paul comes to Ephesus and just preaches Christ, and he's beaten to death, basically, thrown out of the city, and he gets back up, and he goes back into the city to keep preaching. I mean, such a powerful witness. He moved so many hearts. He began to form this flock. He's building this bonfire, so to speak, and he's addressing the priests, the presbyters of Ephesus, as he's preparing to leave them, as he's preparing to leave. And here's what I find fascinating about Paul's dialogue with the Ephesian presbyters, the priests. He says that he knows that when he leaves, savage wolves will come among them and will not spare the flock. He's like, I know that. I know that's coming. Same with Jesus in the gospel. The world will hate them. 
And then he says, and I send them into the world. Savage wolves will come and, dis- and come among the flock and not spare them. The world will hate them. I send them into the world. What is going on? Why does Paul do this? What does he do? I know the wolves are coming. Does he stay? No. He doesn't. He still leaves. He does not stay. He does not stay. He doesn't coddle them. He doesn't protect them. He leaves them knowing that they will struggle, knowing that they will suffer. He knows that they'll be persecuted. And he leaves not because he wants them to suffer or that he wants them to struggle or that he wants them to be persecuted. He leaves them knowing that they will experience all this because if they don't, then they'll never grow. If I stay with you, church in Ephesus, then you'll never grow. Same with the Lord. If I stay with you, if I... Say, you know what? Don't go into the world. I just want you to make these little Christian ghettos, these little Christian enclaves. That's not what he does. Paul here is being a good father, if I can put it that way. He's being a good father. Part of the father's role, yes, is to protect his children, but it's also to throw them in the deep end. It's also to invite them into struggle. It's also to let them experience battle. Part of the father's role is to let his sons and his daughters discover that I have within myself more than I thought was there. To face the battle. Because if I protect you from everything, Paul's saying, you will never grow. You will never, ever grow. I need you to grow into the full stature of Christian discipleship is what he's saying. I need you to choose this. I think about all that within the context of what we're experiencing right now in the church of, you know, our modern age, right? What, we're exper- what the Lord is allowing us to suffer in the present age. Yes, like savage wolves have donned clerical garb. It's true. Like we've experienced it in our own diocese. We've experienced it in the church of the United States. We've experienced it in the global church. There are wolves within and there are wolves without. There are the numbers of the enemies of the church are numberless. You know, I think we here in the United States, especially me and my generation, I had dinner with my classmates last night, the five guys who I was, or the four other guys who I was ordained with, and we were talking about how, in many ways, the past couple years, at least the years of our formation, it was within this lull of the battle, like this sort of temporary peace, this time of peace and security, which makes the church, uh, as one author put it, fat and lazy. The embers of the bonfire kind of begin to cool and they spread out. The light dims when you're not having to fight for it. Like this is why Pope Benedict, when he was uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, I think it was before he was was just Father Ratzinger, when he predicted that the church of the future would be smaller but more on fire. It would be smaller but more on fire. I mean, why is it that in areas where Christians are persecuted that Christianity flourishes? Why is it where the faith is challenged the most that the faithful dig deeper? Do some fall away? Yeah, absolutely they do, but not all. There's this always faithful remnant, and that faithful remnant, because it has to face challenge, it grows hotter and richer and deeper. Like the fact that suffering and persecution should show up in our world, in our worlds, is not a sign of us being punished by the Lord. It's the Father's pedagogy. It's his way of drawing his sons and daughters 
deeper and deeper. It's his way of fanning the flame. He's saying, I want you to be more fortified. I want you to be like a shining luminary in this culture of darkness. He's inviting us deeper. Paul knew this. Justin Martyr knew this. And please, Lord, let us know this in our own day and age. We're called to so much more. And when there's suffering, when there's persecution, that's the only way the Lord can draw us in deeper. So may we not resist it. May we say yes to it. Amen.